Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I am going to address the subject this morning of women preachers. And I, I want to do this um, because I've, I've seen this happening in, in evangelical circles. There's this spirit right now of what's the big deal? That's, that's one of the things I hear. What's the big deal? You know, she's teaching the Word of God. She's teaching sound doctrine. What's the big deal that a, that a woman is, is preaching? Or I hear uh, people go to a conference, and they said, yeah, there was a woman that was preaching at the conference. And, and I asked, well, were, were there men present? And they say, yeah. And they say, well, what's the big deal? It was at a, it was at a conference, you know? It wasn't, wasn't in a, a church or anything like that. I saw last year on Mother's Day, 2021, Ann Graham Lotz preached at Houston's Second Baptist Church at the Mother's Day service. Now, I grew up sometimes uh, darkening the walls of, of Second Baptist Houston. It's, it's one of those foundational Southern Baptist churches. So it was a pretty big deal that she went down there and preached there, and the historic pastor there, Ed Young, uh, gave her the pulpit. She was interviewed by Religion News Service. Later the next week, she said, quote, if people get all weirded out by the fact that I'm a woman in the pulpit when men are in the audience, I just respect them, but I agree to disagree. And I have to follow the Lord and what he's called me to do. And then I'm sure you're aware at this past summer's Southern Baptist Convention, Rick's, Rick Warren stood up at the microphone and spoke in favor of women pastors and all that his church had done in the Southern Baptist Convention. And at the end of the whole thing, received a standing ovation from, from the convention. The uh, people from the floor brought forward to the credentials committee a motion to disfellowship Saddleback Church because they had ordained three women pastors, and their credentials committee refused to do that, even though it clearly violated uh, the Baptist faith and message 2000. Last week, Southern Seminary's trustees came together and passed a motion, a statement that women should not hold the office of pastor. Now, let me ask you a question. Why does anybody ever pass a motion or a statement in a, a, a denominational body? Why do they do that? Because there's an issue. That's why they do that. You go look at the, the modernist controversy of a century ago and the denominations start making statements. Why do they do that? Because there's doctrinal drift. Well, that's what's going on throughout evangelicalism. And the reason I'm primarily concerned about this trend is first and foremost because I desire to see God and his word honored. I want to see God and his word honored. And clearly, this is an abandonment of the clear teaching of the word of God. Calvin said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. So that means if we truly care about God, his honor, the weightiness of the word, that we should be willing to say something and stand for something, even if it means us being isolated or, or put on the fringe. 
We have to stand for the truth. It's Athanasius contramundum, against the world. But we must stand where God's word stands. And God's word, as I'm going to show you this morning, is clear on this issue. But there's another reason why I'm concerned about this trend of women preaching, women preachers, and that is this, is because we will not experience reformation and revival without true preaching. We will not experience reformation or revival without true preaching. And this is a a burden of mine, as I'm sure it's a burden of yours, that we recover true biblical preaching. Every revival in history has come alongside a recovery of the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's what we must recover. And with the proclamation of the Word of God and true preaching, there's always a recovery of authority. However you define preaching, true biblical preaching always carries with it an aspect of authority. And the reason for this is twofold. First, it's authoritative because it is a proclamation of the Word of God and not mere men. It's God's Word. So true preaching always carries the weight of authority. It's not man's word. Martin Luther said, we must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound which flieth into the air and soon vanisheth. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth. If a preacher were postulating his own ideas, there would be a reason why not to speak with authority because who are you to tell other people how to live their lives? Who are you to tell other people to repent? But if you're preaching the word of God, and not your words, then there's every reason to speak the message with authority. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1.11. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I receive the gospel from God, and that's why I preach it. And that's why he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word in season and out of season. You know the verb caruso. It's the picture of the herald that the king or the emperor sends out with a decree. And he goes throughout the, the empire and says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye a message of the emperor. And he calls everyone together, and he speaks the message that he's been given. It's not his own message. He speaks the message that he's been given, and then he has to go back to the emperor and give an account of whether or not he delivered the message. That's Caruso preaching that we are given a message from God And it's his word. Jeremiah said, It is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah 23, 29. J.I. Packer said this, The Bible text is the real preacher, 
And the role of the man in the pulpit is simply to let the passages say their peace through him. Therefore, preaching that does not display divine authority, both in its content and in its manner, is not the substance, but only the shadow of the real thing. You hear what he's saying? If the preaching doesn't carry with it that weight of of authority, it's not the real McCoy. The authority of preaching flows from the preacher's relation to the Bible and to the three persons who are the one God whose word the Bible is. It is only as the preacher is truly under and is seen to be under the authority of God and the Bible that he has and can be felt to have authority as God's spokesman. So there must be a sense where the preacher himself is under the authority of God's word. The second reason for this authority in preaching is because the preaching is not done by just any man, but by the man that God calls. Paul calls this man in 1 Timothy 6, the man of God. It is the man whom God calls for the purpose of preaching. So it's not just that women are not allowed to preach. It's that only men of God who are called by God should preach. Paul says in Romans 1.1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Even stronger in Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So his calling is not from men. He didn't send himself. You know this. He, he recounts the Damascus Road experience three times in Acts. It's, it's a call from God to send him. And it's not just the, uh, the apostles who are called. You know this in Ephesians, Paul, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, when, the, when Christ ascended, this is 4.11, he gave the apostles, so that would be Paul, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So God gives preachers. God gives pastors. God raises up evangelists. And then in in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you know this passage well. This is 6.11. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You hear that? and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The man of God in the Old Testament is a term used to refer to a prophet, a man that was called by God, a man who spoke God's message, a man who belonged to God. And so the picture is this, is that Timothy was a man who was called to speak for God. 
Preaching the word is not a career path that you decide to embark on. It's not a, a job you posture for on LinkedIn. It's not something that you take up at night just because you want to have a special hobby after work hours. What Paul's saying is to preach the word, it's a calling from God. It's a burden that God puts on your soul to preach. And just, I think it's important to, to note that those that are called will display the actual character qualities of a man who's called. And Paul lays those out, doesn't he, in, in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, that there's these qualifications that the called man must meet. But there is a sense where this calling from God allows the preacher to speak with authority. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, whatever authority I may have as a preacher is not the result of any decision on my part. It was God's hand that laid hold of me and drew me out and separated me to this work. A preacher is not a Christian who decides to preach. He does not just decide to do it. It is God who commands preaching, end quote. We have a saying in Texas sometimes that, and you can apply it to, to preaching or a preacher, but a, a preacher would be like a turtle on a fence post. Ever been driving around and see a, a turtle sitting on top of a fence post? And then the second part of the saying is, someone had to put them there, right? Because I don't know if you know this, but turtles don't climb up fence posts. Someone has to put the turtle there. And it's the same with the preacher. If somebody has to put the preacher there. That's why with my boys, I'm not pressuring them to be preachers. I'm not saying, oh, just because your daddy's a preacher, you're going to be a preacher. I'm not a, I'm not a tradesman. God has to put my sons there if they're going to be preachers. I can't pressure them into that, that task. God has to place that burden on their heart. But if God does that, then they will speak with authority. And I think now you're beginning to see the real issue, the real problem. Because before there were lady preachers in this country, there were uncalled preachers. Before there were lady preachers, there were uncalled preachers. America, for a long time, has been listening to uncalled men preaching uncalled words. Just men getting up and glibly speaking whatever they want to talk about. The, late, the latest psychoanalysts, the latest uh, Reader's Digest articles, uh, the, the latest pop psychology, whatever it is, men getting up to speak whatever they want to speak. And everything in this environment, because of the, the seeker movement, which said we need to make everything comfortable for the unbeliever. Therefore, we need to remove this element of what? Authority. 
That's why you don't even see pulpits anymore. People are like sitting there on a, on a chair with a table, drinking coffee and typing on their eye. It, it's, it's an aesthetic that says, we won't speak to you authoritatively. I'm going to sit here as your friend and have a fireside chat. But, but the preacher's job is not simply to be a friend. Yes, speak the truth in love, but the preacher's job is to proclaim the very word of God. Thus saith the Lord. So, the reason why I think the authority of God's word is not heeded by women that are entering pulpits now is because it hasn't been heeded by men in the pulpit. That's why. It's this element of authority that's been lacking. And I just did a, a survey of, of the Gospels and, and Acts and, and, and some of the epistles. And, and what you notice is this, is that Jesus and John the Baptist and the prophets before them and the, the pastors, the evangelists, they all preached with authority. Let me just show you some examples. Mark 1.21 And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority. Sermon on the Mount, when he finishes preaching, Matthew 7.28 And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus was preaching in the temple, the, the, the officers uh, were sent by the, by the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus, and they were spellbound by them and, and by him, and they didn't arrest him. And they went back to the, to the Sanhedrin and they asked him, well, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And they answered, no one ever spoke like this man. That's John 7, 46, because he spoke with authority. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And I'm just going to have you going to, to a number of various passages. But when Peter goes to Cornelius' house, I want you to look at verse 42. Look at this this command of authority in which the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave the apostles to deliver the message. Acts 10.42, Peter stands up and, and he says to Cornelius and, and everyone present, he says, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people, Caruso, to herald the word and to testify now, a witness, when he testifies, testifies with a degree of authority because they're under oath to declare the truth and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. They were commissioned to, to speak this message that they were given authoritatively that Jesus is coming back one day in judgment, but he has provided a way of escape in the gospel to receive forgiveness of sins. And so you see, if you turn back to Acts chapter 2, 
you see they were given this commission by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and just a, you know, a, a month earlier, Peter is, is scared. Skeeter, Peter is, is running uh, from, the, from, the, from the, the temple guard, all those things. And then you see the boldness. And of course, you can attribute this also to the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. But Acts 2.14, it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. He lifts up his voice. He speaks with authority. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Famous statement by the Apostle Paul, verse 4. He says, In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, I didn't just stand up and, and give you a, a few fireside thoughts. I didn't just stand up and wax eloquent about the wisdom of the day. But he said, but my words came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That there was power in his message. Because, again, he said, Galatians, it was the message that, that Christ himself had given him to declare in the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see this element of authority in the, in the preaching of the apostles. I want you now to turn to, to Titus. To, to Titus chapter 2. And you see that this authority was passed on to the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. I want you to look at Titus 2.15. Titus 2.15. Look at this imperative. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Re exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And let me just give you a few other cross-references where he said similar things to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.11 Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Now, does command suggest just simple coaxing? In the Marine Corps, we talk about command presence. And that's when the drill instructor, whoever it is, comes in front of the block of Marines and says, attention, and they all come to attention. He starts giving commands. And they all follow those commands. You ask those recruits, is there an element of authority in those commands? Yes, there is. And Paul is saying to Timothy, to Titus, that you need to speak as one with authority and command the obedience of the people. Because you're, you're not commanding your ideas, you're commanding God's ideas, God's word. 1 Timothy 5.7, jot down that one. Command these things as well. Command these things as well. 1 Timothy 6.2, teach and urge these things. 
And then, of course, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So it's to speak with authority the word of God which carries authority. So you might ask, well, what does all this have to do with women preachers? What does this have to do with women preachers? And the answer is everything. Everything. God's design for his word is for it to be preached in formal settings when there's both men and women to be done by men. Because as we've seen, men are the heads of the individual households. The husband is the head of the wife. I want you to turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know we, we saw this yesterday, but there's an emphasis in the family and, and in the God-designed structures that he created that the husband is the head of the wife. And so when a woman stands up and teaches God's word to men, which, by the way, is always authoritative. It's always authoritative to teach and urge people to obey God's word. When a woman does that to other husbands, other men, what she's doing is usurping the authority that that man has in his own family, the authority that God has, has given him. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 11.3, and I'm just going to walk through, I'm not going to do a full exposition of this passage, but I'm, I, I just want to, to, to walk you through it very briefly. You, you see what, what Paul outlines here. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So you see this hierarchy of authority. It, it's Again, I'm not going to go through the exegesis of Kephale. We did that yesterday. You understand that, that that word, kephale, head, means a position of authority because, as Grudem showed us every time, it's in the singular, and in reference to a person, it means a position of authority. And you see the hierarchy that it's first God, God the Father. Christ in his incarnation submits to the authority of the Father, the husband, submits to Christ, and the wife submits to her husband. It's very simple to see the hierarchy that Paul outlines in, in verse 3. Verse 4, he, he then says, he makes a, a general statement. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Paul simply says it's wrong for a man to wear a veil or a prayer shawl. It's dishonorable to do so because the man is the one, the husband is the one who is in authority. And the veil, the shawl, was a symbol of a wife being under authority. So therefore, Paul just says it's dishonorable for a man to do this. Next, he's going to address the, the wife or, or, or women, 1 Corinthians 11.5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. 
Now, I just want to say a few statements about verse 5. It seems Paul's saying that women were allowed to pray or prophesy in some of the assemblies of the early church. And prophecy, we would equate now to the reading of Scripture. Prophecy was God's word. It was a word given to a prophet to be proclaimed, much like reading Scripture would be. So our church sometimes has prayer meetings where anybody can stand up and pray, anybody can stand up and, and, and read Scripture. And the early church had all sorts of, of meetings and, and houses and, and those types of things. And, and what Paul's saying, I think, is that in those instances, women were allowed to pray or prophesy, read Scripture. But he's saying a woman that does this without a veil who's uncovered dishonors her head. And there's some debate amongst commentators whether this means her head, her literal head, or if it means her husband. I think it refers to her husband because Paul's already said that the head of the wife is the husband. So he's saying if a woman reads Scripture, prays, prophesies, and her head is uncovered. Who's she dishonoring? She's dishonoring her own husband who's there because she's appearing as one without authority in, in the body. By the way, there, there's, there's, it's not exactly clear what it meant in Corinth to be unveiled. It certainly meant that you were outside of authority. Absolutely. If you weren't wearing a veil, you, you were a woman that was not under the headship of a man. But there's also theories that the, the temple prostitutes that were up on the mountain, uh, right above Corinth, all those, all those female slaves, that they all shaved their heads. And of course, they would have been women uh, uh, without authority. Or there's there's speculation that, that a, a woman with a shaved head was an adulterous woman living outside of the headship of her husband. But either way, the message is clear that if you, a woman shaves her head, she's outside the authority of her husband. So what Paul's saying is if a woman is worshiping without the veil, it is the same as if your hair was shaven. You are a woman outside of authority and you're disgracing your head, your husband. If you look at verse 6, he says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So verse 6 is almost uh, a restatement of of verse 5. But what I want you to notice is how Paul is, is saying that for a woman to, to cut her hair is a dishonorable thing because the, the hair itself, he's now saying, is a symbol of authority. And this goes back all the way to creation. I, I read one commentator. He said, quote, the oneness of male and female in Christ, Galatians 3.28, does not obliterate the distinction giving, given in creation. Man disgraces his head by wearing a veil, 
woman disgraces hers by not wearing one. For this reason, covering your head, wearing a veil, um, is a sign that you are outside of authority. Now, today, many would argue that a woman's long hair, longer hair than a man, is synonymous with with, uh, wearing a veil. If you look at verse 15, Paul says, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So there's a sense where the, the, the longer hair of a woman is synonymous with the, uh, the veil or the, or the head covering. But the principle is this, the long hair in the veil more significantly represent the authority that is over the woman with her husband. So verse seven, now he goes back to, to the theology What's the theology behind all this? He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So this is what you might call the authority of glory, that man was originally made as the divine image bearer. God made man, remember, from his breath and and dust, and God fashioned the woman from man. The man was created first, the woman was created from the man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is the the authority of order. The man comes first, and therefore the husband is in the position of authority. God gives these commands to Adam to work and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. God gives commands to Adam to not not eat of... uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He gives these commands all before the woman is even created. Adam names the animals before the woman is created. Adam names Eve. And Eve is made from the rib of Adam. And then in verse 9, it's authority of purpose. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Eve, you remember was created by God to be Adam's helper. Remember Genesis 2.19, God brings all the animals to Adam, and there was not in Azar a helper found suitable for him, and so therefore God creates Eve to be a helper to Adam in his task. And here's, here's the point that Paul's making, is that Adam was not created to be Eve's helper. Eve was created to be Adam's helper. So there's an authority of purpose there. That God designed the man to be the protector, the provider. God designed the woman to be the help meet to her husband. 1 Corinthians 11.10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So this is the theology. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Authority, exousia, authority, power. And there needs to be, Paul says, a a demonstration of this. And this is to be the order in the worship, that that the worship expresses this natural order. Now, he says because of angels, and and there's speculation of what that means, but as you know, angelos could also mean messengers. He, He means when people visit the church, I think, 
that they need to see a clear distinction between the men and the women. They need to know, oh, that, that woman is a, is a woman under the, the authority of her head. I think that's what Paul's saying there. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14 because I think Paul's going to carry this principle further. This, this principle of authority between husbands and wives and, and in gathered worship. Verse 33, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Listen to this. As in all the churches of the saints. So he's saying these, this is a universal principle that I'm laying out here. Universal principle. The woman should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. By being silent, Greek word is sigao. It means to be still, to be quiet, to literally, to, to not speak. And obviously we, we saw earlier that Paul seems to make an allowance for praying in some instances, reading scripture in some instances, but there's some type of speaking, he's saying, that, that women are not allowed to do when the church gathers publicly. And I believe that what he's not allowing women to do is to teach and preach the word of God. They're not allowed to stand up and say, this is what God's word says and interpret it. And, and notice what he says, why the, the women are to keep silent in the churches and why they're not permitted to speak. He says, he draws it back to the very issue that he outlined in, in chapter 11. But they should be in submission. Submission. It's, it's this element of authority that when a woman stands up and preaches God, God's word, she's usurping the authority of who? Her husband and all the other husbands that are gathered there in the body. She's usurping that authority. And so Paul says, but should she, she should be in submission as the law also says. And then he adds, I think he makes this crystal clear in the next verse. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So he says, look, if you, if you want to speak up in, in the congregation and, and question doctrine, and, and I was talking to Gavin this morning, and he said, you know, so many people, when they go to ask questions, they're at, they're, they actually start preaching a mini-sermon. You have this, right? But, but he's saying, look, when, if, if there's this, this element of, of where people are are questioning the sermon, or questioning the teaching, that you're having a dialogue, Paul says, don't usurp the authority of your husband. Don't come to, to the pastor directly and start, start questioning things. You go 
and ask your husband first. And, and practically speaking, that's going to that's gonna be a very helpful thing for, for your family and your husband because it's going to force your husband to know the truth. It's going to force your husband to, to be thinking through the theology of what's been taught and to be able to then explain it to the wife. And then she's not usurping his authority that he has. Do you see how important this issue of authority is that, that Paul is emphasizing in, uh, in the family and in the gathered church? Now, there's another reason why I believe that Paul here in 1 Corinthians 14 is prohibiting women from preaching the word of God to, to mixed audiences. And that's because he elaborates further in 1 Timothy 2. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 to verse 11. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. You hear that similar language of remaining quiet? And, and Paul's here giving just a very clear statement. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That phrase, I do not permit, is an apostolic imperative. It's what's called a gnomic present tense verb. And by that, Paul expects this injunction to be carried out into the future. Some commentators have said he's not, uh, he, he's just referencing the, the church in, in Ephesus because there were women there who were, who were speaking out and they were, they were speaking false teaching. But what Paul's laying out here is a general principle. He's laying out a general principle that should be observed by every New Testament church. And notice that in this prohibition that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority, the qualification is over a man. That's the qualification. They are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Um, look at teaching and exercising authority. I think, I think this phrase has been widely misunderstood because some have said, well, Paul is just simply saying here that a, a woman can't be a pastor, but that they can still teach men as long as they don't hold the office of pastor. Have you heard this? You know, it's, it's fine because she's preaching under the authority of the elders. That's a thing now. It's fine because she's preaching, but she's not ordained as a pastor. She's, she's a deacon. So it's fine for her to preach to men. But that's not what Paul's saying. He very well could have said that. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he addresses elders, the qualifications. He could, he could have just said here, I do not permit a woman to hold the office of elder or pastor. But that's not what he says. He lists two functions, teaching and exercising authority. And he's also, noticed not putting these terms together. He's not saying, I do not permit a woman to teach with authority. I've heard that one. Well, it's fine for her to teach because she's not speaking loudly. She's not speaking with an authoritative voice. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, 
I do not permit a woman to teach a man. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Uh, The same conjunction is used between teaching and exercising authority that Paul uses in Galatians 3.28 when he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. So obviously those terms are polarizing. A Jew is not a Greek. A slave is not a, a free man. A man, hello, is not a woman. There are differences. And Paul's saying the same thing here. There's differences between teaching and exercising authority. So this first prohibition that Paul gives is to teaching men. The Greek word is didasko. It's where we get our English word didactic. In the New Testament, it means to teach theology and Christian doctrine from the Scriptures. And this is what Paul had obviously devoted his life to do. In Acts 18.11, Luke records that Paul stayed in Corinth a year and six months teaching, same Greek word, the Word of God among them. Paul tells Timothy to do the same thing, to teach Christian doctrine. He says in 1 Timothy 4.11, we saw this earlier, command and teach these things. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Therefore, he exhorts Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching The teaching of sound doctrine was the central element of Timothy's ministry. So does this mean that that women cannot teach sound doctrine in the church? Is that what Paul's saying? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's simply saying that women can't teach sound doctrine to men. Titus 2.3, the older women are to do what? Teach. The younger women. In the, in the early church, the older women would gather several younger women in their houses and they would teach them. This was the normal practice. Women certainly also taught children sound doctrine. Paul implies this in 2 Timothy 1.5, that it was Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice who discipled him and taught him the faith. Proverbs 1.8, Solomon says, forsake not your mother's teaching. And then there's the account in Acts 18 where Apollos was teaching boldly. And Luke records when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Now notice this is informal. This isn't in the gathered worship. They took him aside because I hear this quoted all the time. You know, don't you know that Priscilla was was preaching, exercising authority over Apollos? No, she she takes him aside with her husband, Aquila. And then they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Notice also in that text that Priscilla's name is not mentioned first, and that's probably done for a reason. Aquila is mentioned first, and it's an informal setting. So it's not a formal gathering of the church or a gathering of the body of believers. So the prohibition that Paul is making is of a formal teaching of Scripture by a woman To men, that's the prohibition. It's a function. It's not merely an office. And some some will say, well, Paul here is addressing the church in Ephesus. So it's fine if you have a parachurch ministry. It's fine if you have a traveling evangelist come because 
It's not in the context of a church. It's fine if it's at a, a crusade meeting for a woman to stand up and preach. But can you imagine if there was a, a, a parachurch ministry in Ephesus and Paul were walking along one day and were to step in and, and there was a woman preaching? Can you imagine how Paul would, would treat that issue? And Paul would say, oh, oh it's fine because it's not a, an official church. Not to mention earlier, Paul has just given instructions about modesty does, does that only apply in, in the gathered church, or does it also apply in the, the parachurch ministry? No, it, these are universal principles that Paul's laying down. And you know how I know it's a universal principle? Because of the rationale that Paul is going to give. The, print, the, the rationale that Paul's going to give is not just some cultural thing in Ephesus. The rationale is the creative order. It's, it's God's design from the very beginning. I'm going to get to that in a second, but I want you to see this, this, the second prohibition in verse 12 is to not exercise authority over a, man, over a man. The Greek word is authenteo. It means to assume a stance of independent authority, to give orders, to dictate terms. Some have tried to argue that Paul still, still allows for women pastors. They are just not to domineer over men. They're not to to, to lead in a negative way, as if this, this verb has a negative function. And, and of course, that would be the state of modern evangelicalism, that we would look at authority as inherently negative, right? That's the problem to begin with. But authenteo is not a negative function, but it's a word that carries with it a positive function. Authority is good. And one implication of this is I believe what Paul's saying is that only men are to serve formally in the office of elder, and I believe deacon. And I think Paul's going to make that clear in the next chapter, that men are to hold the offices of elder, pastor, and deacon. And that's why Paul reiterates at the, the end of verse 12 that women are to remain quiet. It's this issue of authority. So what Paul lays out here is what has been taught in the church for essentially 2,000 years. This, what I have laid out is nothing new. It is simply the clear teaching of the Word of God. It wasn't until the past 50 years or so, well, maybe you could go back a little further with Amy Simple McPherson and, and Strands in the charismatic movement, but it's only been in, in, in the last century where this became controversial. And of course, we know that that's because of the rise of the, the feminism movement, where people have begun to, to challenge this teaching that, that uh, men are to, to teach with authority and that, that women are not to teach men. And this has become really the, uh, the center of debate, this, this whole issue. Now, look at the, the reason that Paul gives for this imperative. It's not that Paul's a chauvinist. It's not that Paul is, is trying to demean women. But again, he goes back to the creation order. And I want you to see the first argument he uses. It's the argument from the creation order. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It, it's the same thing that he said in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul makes such an important argument with these words. It's so in insightful. It's, this is a historical fact that Adam was formed first, 
than Eve. And so there is an inherent authority with the husband over the wife, with the man. And Paul's second argument is then that what the original sin, when it took place, was a rejection of this creation order. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So by this statement, uh, Paul is not saying that women are more gullible than men. What he's saying is that the original sin occurred when Eve was tempted by Satan And rather than going to her husband, her leader and her head that God had graciously given her, she exercised authority and leadership outside of Adam's headship. She usurped Adam's headship and authority by taking the fruit and eating it. And in so doing, she became a transgressor and a lawbreaker. Now question, Romans chapter 5, who does Paul hold accountable for the first sin? Adam. You don't even see Eve's name in Romans chapter 5. Eve's not even mentioned. Adam is the covenant head. But Eve sinned first. Adam's held responsible. What took place? The usurping of the creative order. The usurping of Adam's headship. I think this is so clear what, what Paul is saying here. She's the one who took the fruit. Adam is the one who is ultimately held responsible And so what Paul is saying, follow the logic here. He's saying when a woman preaches to men, a similar thing is is occurring as the original sin. Is that God's natural design for headship is being usurped. And therefore, therefore, listen to this, the word of God is being negated. Because do you remember what? Packer said, the preacher must be one who is under authority. A woman who is preaching is outside of the authority of the word of God and she's outside the authority of her husband. She's usurping that authority and that's, that's the original sin. And so let me close by saying this. What we have to recover is true preaching. Preaching with this element of authority. We need to recover men who boldly preach Christ and Him crucified, who honor God and who are are under the authority of the Word of God and who are willing to speak up for the authority of His truth, who are willing to say something. And if that happens, I think God can use us. I think God can use men in the future In this generation, I think there's hope because I think there's still men who respect and revere the authority of God's word. Um, Let me give you a quote. This is from Lloyd-Jones when he went and spoke at, at Spurgeon's College. He said, quote, the low level of the life of the church today is is due to the lack of doctrinal preaching. This is a question never to be asked. We have the commission to preach not a call to satisfy the popular palate. Preach the word. Our one concern should be to preach the truth. And, you know, you you don't need a lot of people doing this before the Holy Spirit begins to to do something. Begins to do something. So the call this morning, 
know, because you can't go out and you can't, American evangelicalism is a mess. You can't show up at conferences and, and picket and say you can't preach, but what we can do is we can be faithful. We can preach the word with authority. We can say, not in a, not in a, a mean-spirited way, we can say this whole idea of women preaching is wrong. And we can stand for the truth. And so that's the imperative this morning. It's simply to stand. It's simply to be faithful. And it's simply to preach and preach with authority. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these these scripture passages that you've laid out through the Apostle Paul where he outlines this authority that is is present in the church when when the, the people of God gather and how you want your word to be preached, how you, you don't want the, the word of God to be undermined by someone speaking it outside of the authority structures that you've given. And, and we pray, Lord, that we would simply be faithful, be faithful to honor the word of God, be, faithfully to, be faithful to proclaim it, be faithful to teach it, and be faithful to defend it. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.